0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is David Stein. After I recorded this episode, and right when I was about to publish it, I realized I had shared way too much market data in terms of the extent and frequency of U.S. stock market losses, and I hadn't provided a summary sheet, quick reference guide for you. I provided that, in my weekly Insider's Guide email. But if you're not a member of my Insider's Guide, you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net, and I'll send that summary sheet to you. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can text the word DECLINE, D-E-C-L-I-N-E, to the number 44222. That's the word DECLINE to 44222. And I'll immediately send you this summary reference sheet so you can look at the data as I go through it and mention it during this particular episode. Enjoy the show. I hope you enjoy episode 103. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 103. It's titled, How to Reenter the Stock Market. I recently received an email from Josh, who is a listener of the show and a member of the Money for the Rest of Us hub. He asked a question I get frequently. Josh's portfolio, as I understand it, is primarily in cash. On the sidelines is how he put it. He wanted to know how to move back into the stock market after having been out for a while. More specifically, he was waiting for another 10% decline in stocks before he could he would pull the trigger, as he said, and move back into the market. About a week before Josh's email, I received a similar one from a number, another member of the hub. We actually did a plus episode, the weekly episode that we do, premium episode for hub members on this particular topic. But I wanted to expand on it further in this episode. So this this particular member wrote he had stayed away from the market because he feared entering it at the wrong time. He acknowledged he couldn't wait for the right time to invest, invest otherwise the cash in his account would have gradually lose value due to inflation. In early 2009, I was hired by the foundation for an environmental organization. They had sold stocks and moved millions of dollars into cash in late 2009 or 2008. So after taking a big hit in October 2008 and into November, then they moved millions of dollars into cash. They were fearful and could no longer stand the losses. The future just seemed so uncertain to them. They hired me in part to answer the same question these listeners had. How do you move back into the stock market when there's a chance the market will fall further? And if it does, you will look stupid and feel bad. Now notice this is not merely a tactical question. This is an emotional question, laden with fear and regret, rife with uncertainty. Elroy Dimpson of the London business school defined risk as more things can happen than will happen. The list of things that could potentially happen, both good and bad, is much longer than the list of what actually will happen. Prudent investors respect the fact there are things that could happen that have never happened before, that they're not even imaginable, that they're hard to believe. At the same time, we still have to incur some risk of loss, In order to earn a return, we have to play the probabilities while having a healthy respect for the unexpected. One of my favorite novels is Life of Pi by Yann Martel. It's the story of a young man named Pisin Molotar Patel. He goes by Pi. Pi and his family are emigrating from India to Canada. Back in India, Pi's father had a zoo, and they decide the economy's getting bad, they're going to leave India, they, and then they sold some of their animals in India, and some they're taking with them to sell in Canada. While they're on the boat, the, the, the boat sinks, and Pi's family's lost. His mom and dad and his brother are killed. Pi finds himself on a lifeboat with a zebra an orangutan and... I forget the other animal. It was a, I think it was a meerkat, perhaps. But finally, there was also a large bangled tiger named Richard Parker. Within a few days, it's only Pi and Richard Parker, the tiger, left. It's an incredible story. And at the end of the book, there is a dialogue between two Japanese investigators from the shipping company that the... the The ship itself was a a Japanese ship registered in Panama. I'm going to share some of this dialogue because it gets to the point of this episode about how there are things that can happen that are completely unbelievable, that are unexpected, and we just have to live with that. So the two Japanese investigators say, I'm sorry to say it so bluntly. We don't mean to hurt your feelings, but you don't really expect us to believe you, do you? Carnivorous trees, a fish-eating algae that produces fresh water, tree-twelling aquatic rodents, these things don't exist. Only because you've never seen them, said Pi. That's right, we believe what we see. What do you do when you're in the dark? Now about the tiger, we're not even sure about it either. What do you mean? We have difficulty believing it. It's an incredible story. Precisely, I don't know how I survived. No trace of the tiger was found. That's hard to believe, isn't it? There are no tigers in America. If there is a wild tiger out there, don't you think the police would have heard of it by now? Mr. Patel, a tiger is an incredibly dangerous wild animal. How could you survive in a lifeboat with one? Pai goes on to say, What you don't realize is that we are a strange and forbidding species to wild animals. We fill them with fear. They avoid us as much as possible. It took centuries to still the fear in some pliable animals. Domestication, it's called. But most cannot get over the fear, and I doubt they ever will. When wild animals fight us, it's out of sheer desperation. They fight when they feel they have no other way out. It is a very last resort. I recently read an article by David Quammen in National Geographic. He was talking about Yellowstone. And there's only been seven bear fatalities in Yellowstone National Park in the past 100 years. Yet there are an estimated 300 to 600 gri- grizzly bears and five to 600 black bears spread out throughout the park. And I've been to Yellowstone numerous times. I've never seen a grizzly there, even though there's, there's 600 of them somewhere. I've seen a black bear once. And so animals, they're trying to avoid us. And... So that these investors says in a lifeboat. Come on, Mister P- Patel. It's just hard to believe a tiger in a lifeboat. Hard to believe. What do you know about hard to believe? Said Pai? and Pai goes on to describe how a polar bear escaped the Calcutta Zoo in 1971, never to be heard from again. And if you took the city of Tokyo and turned it upside down and shook it, you'd be amazed at all the animals that would fall out: badgers, wolves, boa constrictors, komodo dragons, crocodiles. Ostriches, giraffes, elephants, hidden because they're avoiding people. Pai goes on to say, if you stumble at mere believability, what are you living for? Isn't love hard to believe? Mr. Patel, don't bully me with your politeness, Pai says. Love is hard to believe. Ask any lover. Life is hard to believe. Ask any scientist. God is hard to believe. Ask any believer. What is your problem with hard to believe? We're just being reasonable. So am I. I applied my reason at every moment. Reason is excellent for getting food, clothing, and shelter. Reason is the very best toolkit. Nothing beats reason for keeping tigers away. But be excessively reasonable and you risk throwing out the universe with the bathwater. Tigers exist. Lifeboats exist. Oceans exist. Because the three have never come together in your limited experiences. You f- refuse to believe that they might. Yet the plain fact is that the tsitsum brought them together and then sank. One reason things are hard to believe is we tend to focus on the local event, things that happen around us, things we've seen. And we don't focus on the law of large numbers. I recently read about that law in the book Fluke, The Math and Myth of Coincidence. It's by Joseph Mazur. M-A-Z-E-R. And one of the questions he asks is, what is the probability of a squirrel being hit by lightning while crossing the road? That seems impossible. That seems hard to believe. A a bolt of lightning is going to kill a squirrel crossing the road? Unbelievable. Yet then he walks through the numbers. There are 1.1 billion squirrels in the U.S., and there are 4 million miles of road and 3.7 million square miles of land in the U.S. So, in, in, as he estimates, it's plausible at any moment of the day there are 300 squirrels crossing the road. At the same time, there are 110,000 thunderstorms in the U.S., most of them in the summer. back And in the summer is when squirrels are most likely to cross the road because... At least in Idaho, you don't see squirrels a lot in the winter because they're hibernating. So you have this concentration of squirrels all over the U.S. crossing the road, probably 300 at any given moment. And if you have 100,000 thunderstorms a year, then it becomes more probable that, yes, a squirrel is probably hit by a bolt of lightning, who knows, a couple times a year. And so, but the, the idea is, we focus on the large numbers. And so, Major goes on to say, when numbers are exceedingly large, like humans' populations spread over the vastness of this planet, then many complex phenomena of nature may simply be explained as randomly picking a number a gazillion times. If there's enough numbers, enough people, and enough things going on, anything can happen. He goes on to say, and from that huge Volume of random numbers, chance creates an ever-evolving dynamic world. The law of large numbers says anything's impossible because there are so many variables that could potentially come together. Major goes on to talk about belief. He says, history tells us that what we believe now may not be believable a century from now. There is more out there than just the things we see the things we measure, and the things we look to know. Beliefs, no matter how strong they may be today, are not the last words. They are simply the working hypothesis. There is a pinch of randomness in the original recipe of the universe, and our tools for observation are limited, so we cannot know everything. The job of statistics is not to find causes, but rather to find suspects. You can never know for sure. Many natural relations that cannot be explained by laws or measured by observations can be linked by statistical measurements. Oftentimes we don't know why something exists. We just know that it does, which is one reason folk wisdom can be so helpful. Things that have been passed down for centuries, even though we don't know why they work, they do work. So we're less worried. The statistics say they work. Only later we, we, we might find out why they work. Measure. Nothing is 100% certain in this real world of atoms and molecules. Therefore, we must have a way of determining not what is certain, but what is probable. So what does that have to do with investing? And this idea is, how do you move back into the market after being out? Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H dot slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Well, unfortunately with investing, the the law of large numbers doesn't apply. We only have roughly 100 years of market history. We don't have billions of billions randomly generated numbers, in term, we do perhaps of, of individual stocks, but when we aggregate them together into market and indices, the history is, is limited. And so in that case, perhaps we have to recognize that there are things that could happen that are entirely uncertain that, that could be unexpected, but we still have to take some risks. We can't be completely out of the market. The re- reality is moving completely out of the market and then back in will likely result in a mistake along the way, most likely in timing. So if you're deciding, am I going to move back into the market, if I'm, ex- I'm going to move out and move back in, first off, let's say you have a 70% chance, 70% of the, 70% of the time you're right in terms of your timing of moving out of the market. And 70% of the time, you're right moving back into the market. That means that your chance of getting both of those decisions right is is less than 50% because you multiply those probabilities together. The 70% times the 70% is roughly 49%. And so it's very, very difficult to try to time short-term movements in the stock market. Now, when we look at some statistics, because here's what we have to focus on, we have to focus on the probabilities because that's all we have. Since 1928, U.S. stocks, as measured by the S&P 500 index, have fallen more than 5% on average, 3.4 times per year, with an average decline of 10.9%. This is according to data from Ned Davis Research. Those losses lasted on average about 36 days. So since 1928, there's been 302 occurrences of markets falling more than 5%. So three three times more than three times per year. That's a five percent or greater loss every 15 weeks. Now that's what's known as market volatility, but It's also why it's impossible if you're sitting here out of the market and you're afraid the market is going to fall further, in all likelihood, it probably will, given that it falls more than 5% three times a year. So we should assume our baseline assumption is moving back into the stock market, the market will fall. Now, will you feel bad? Yes. Is it a mistake? No. You can't hold yourself accountable for something completely unpredictable and out of control. And knowing what the market is going to do over the next month or two is just, it's just it's unknowable, particularly given how the, these 5% moves are so common. If you decide to get married during the winter months in Seattle, there's a greater than 50% chance it will rain on your wedding day. Will you feel bad about it raining? Of course. Is it a mistake? No. Of course, you could play the percentages and get married in July when there's only a 16% chance it will rain on your wedding day. Likewise, you could play the percentages in terms of going back into the stock market. The best month for reentry into the U.S. stock market is November, according to data from Ned Davis Research. Since 1952, the U.S. stock market as measured by the S&P 500 index, has gained 6.8% on average for the three months from November to January, and 3.9% on average for the six months. Actually, I got these reversed. It's it's 3.9% on average for the three months from November to January, and it's 6.8% on average from November to April, that six-month period. So that would be the best time. If you're just trying to play the numbers, then go back into the market in November. The worst time historically to re-enter the stock market is in the summer months. The average six-month gain for the S&P 500 from May to October is 1.5%. So there's about a five-percentage point difference between going in in November versus going in in May. For the three months from August to October, the S&P 500 has lost on average 0.1%. So hence, it's better to get married in the summer, and re-enter the stock market in the winter. But a more prudent approach is to tr- is, is is just don't try to time the month of the re-entry into the stock market. Instead, do what I did with this this environmental client, this foundation. We went back to our long-term plan. We developed, we took their portfolio and we segregated it into buckets. This is your short-term. Assets. These are your longer-term assets. We developed a asset allocation model and a reasonable rate of return and a range of return for each portfolio over the, over the subsequent ten years. We stopped focusing on the near term and we we pulled back and we developed a plan. It's so easy to focus on local, on the local, on the near term. We need to have longer-term plans, and that's one of the things we do on the money for the rest of us hub. We develop long-term asset allocation plans, including the model portfolios that I'm releasing this week to help members make sort of step back and make more reasonable long-term decisions. Trying to avoid a 5 to 10% decline in the stock market is extremely difficult as these events occur frequently. And so there's a probability of getting whipsawed and exacerbating losses through poor timing decisions. Now, does that mean investors should never adjust their portfolio allocation based on market conditions? Should they just ride every market up and down like a roller coaster? Well, here's what's interesting. While the short-term movements, the day-to-day, the 5 to 10% movements, are very hard to predict, the longer-term bear markets are actually a little easier to predict. And why is that? Well, a five percent decline, more than five percent, when the market, that, as I mentioned, it happens three times a year. But at the same time, the odds of it going from a loss to greater than ten percent only happens about a third of the time. So once the market's lost five, only a third of the time does it go on to mark to to have a ten percent loss. And so if, you, if you're a buy and hold, you're just playing the odds, then you should just write it out because it happens so frequently. Now, since 1928, there's been 96 occurrences of a loss of 10% or more. Happens about once a year, and there's an, in the average declines about 19.5%. Now, there's about a 45% chance that that 10% decline will worsen to a 15% decline. So still, half the time, it doesn't get worse. But There have been 43 times when the market has lost 15% or more. So every two years, it lasts about 198 days, and the average loss is 28%. 58% of the time, once the market has lost, the U.S. market has lost 15%, you move into a bear market. So more than half the time, things get worse. And and, that's, and there have been 25 occurrences since 1928 of stocks losing 20% or more, more, and it's lasted 300 days, and the average decline has been 36%. It happens about once every three years. Now, sometimes there's longer stretches when it happens longer. The last time the market has lost more than 20% in the U.S. Is, was back in 2009, so we've gone six years. But what's interesting, there's markers – For these bear market declines, usually they accompany a recession. So 10 of the 12 worst bear markets in U.S. history have been during with recessions, and the average decline has been 47%. Again, all this data is from Ned Davis research. And in the past eight recessions, the median U.S. stock market decline has been 30%, and it's lasted 540 days On average, and the post-recession bull market has been a 66% gain over 474 days. Now, those are long periods of time. So, if the uh, typically bear markets accompany recessions, not all of them, and a recession is a reduction in output by businesses, and during recessions, Corporate profits decline since 1948. Corporate profits have declined 17 percent on average during recessions. And so, when we look at playing the probabilities, we have to first step back and say, is is there a relationship? Why do stock markets fall during recessions? Well, one reason is because corporate profits fall, and there's a fear that the profitability will get worse, and so investors get fearful, they leave the market, profits fall. And the markets fall during recessions. And then once the recession bottoms out or even anticipating before even the recession ends, the market starts to rebound. And the average bull market after recession is about 66% gain over 474 days. Now, those are things you don't have to time exactly. The average decline is 30% and the average gain is 66% both during and after a recession. You don't have to time it perfectly in order to reduce risk when risk are high. And how do you know risk are high? Well, there are markers that suggest a recession is imminent. The Conference Board of Leading Economic Indicators, it is certainly something that I look for, typically peaks 11 months prior to the start of recession. It's predicted all seven recessions since 1970. So as risk managers... We, we can, if we want, we can ride markets up and down like a roller coaster, or we can play the probabilities and recognize that when the economy is slowing, as indicated by PMI data, purchaser manager ind- indice data, which I, you can get if you go on market, M-A-R-K-I-T, they're a provider of that. Or you can, you can join, become a member of the Money for the Rest of the Hub, where we're looking at these These statistics officially on a monthly basis looking at investment conditions. What are economic trends? Is the the risk of recession increasing? What are valuations? Are valuations, is the market overvalued? And then we are looking for regime changes to potentially reduce exposure to risky assets on those rare occasions when the economy is slowing a recession sees imminent, and knowing that if market internals are poor, where we've seen losses of 10% or more, and the odds of those losses increasing during a slowing economy, the probability says 60% of the time, a 15% loss gets to be a 20% loss. So how do you re-enter the stock market if you've been out a while and you're trying to coax yourself back in, you feel fearful and uncertain? First, you set a long-term asset allocation plan. Understand what you can earn over the next 10 years investing and know where you're trying to go. Understand the range of returns and just set a long-term plan. Step back and stop focusing on the short term. Second, recognize that you will never time these 5 to 10% losses. They happen too frequently and there's no markers to suggest when they're going to happen. It's usually driven... market fear, market internals in terms of just its trend, its momentum, and it can't be timed because it happens too frequently. And if you try to time it, the odds of getting whipsawed and exacerbating losses is just too high. Third, decide whether you're willing to adjust your risk exposure based on longer term market conditions, based on if markets fall 15%. Are you monitoring to see if a recession appears imminent? And then will you adjust your risk? Some investors are pure buy and hold. They don't want to take make those changes. They're comfortable riding the markets up and down, and that's perfectly fine. But other investors who are fearful will are willing to adjust their exposure. I do it on my portfolio, but you don't have to do it very often. It doesn't happen very often. We're looking for Regime changes, slowing economies during period, perhaps when markets are overvalued, and then you make the adjustments because that is playing the probability. Fourth, recognize that the unbelievable things can always happen. Markets can fall even more than it's ever happened before. Worst case scenarios often become the worst case scenario. After it it exceeds the previous worst-case scenario, we've only had 100 years of market history. We can't play the law of large numbers when it comes to investing. We have to just recognize and step back and say the unpredictable, the unbelievable can happen, but at the end of the day, we are going to focus on the probability, set a long-term plan, and then decide whether we're going to stick to it through thick and thin or make adjustments based on market conditions based on playing the probabilities. You can get show notes for this episode at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide. Each week, I'll email you those show note links and a summary article where I provide a synopsis of that episode and other valuable content. You can sign up for that at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.net, or if you're a U.S.-based Listener, you can text the word insider to the number 44222. I've mentioned the Money for the Rest of Us hub. This is an education platform where I provide, as your virtual mentor, help you set these long term asset allocations, help you analyze market conditions to see if prudent risk management suggests we should reduce risk or increase risk. You can get more information on that at the Money at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.